You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 88. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we talk to archaeologist Bill Whitehead about drones and all things tech in CRM. Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the show. Paul, how's it going? Pretty good, Chris. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Not too bad. Stressing out with some end of summer stuff, but uh, I think Likewise. a conversation about drones, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll solve all those problems. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go ahead and get right into this because we've only got two segments and I want to bring on our guest and our guest is Bill Whitehead. Bill, how's it going? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. Here in uh, lovely central New Mexico. Nice. Nice. Well, why don't you give our listeners a little idea about who you are and what you do professionally, and uh, we'll go from there. Well, I'm Bill Whitehead, and I'm a cultural resource specialist for SWCA Environmental Consultants, and I am a a drone pilot, part of the uh, drone core for our company. Okay. You have your FAA Part 107 license? Correct. Outstanding. You know, our producer, uh, Christine, got us hooked up because of a drone conversation. And uh, so I want to know, how long has SWCA been in drones, first off? Well, the company has been, uh, we started about two years ago with a, uh, a GIS uh, specialist in Pasadena who wanted to, uh, he's probably one of the first to get a Part 107 license. Uh, he was an ex-Navy pilot. And he started uh, the drone program more with a a videographer's mindset, and he brought that idea to other uh, departments and other offices in the company. And Jesse Shuck and I, he's also another pilot in our office. We wanted to take that into the analytical realm. How can we use the capabilities of photogrammetry? which come along with taking, obviously taking pictures from a drone, how can we use the primary um, analytical tool of drone photography? How can we use photogrammetry to improve everything we're doing? And from there, you just start talking about platforms and equipment and missions and how to do it right and how to then take this, uh, this data and apply it to all of the, uh, the client's needs. There you go. So what kind of equipment, I mean, we'll start at the beginning here. What kind of equipment are you guys flying right now? Well, if you're going to do this drone work, I suggest that you start off small, i.e. the the DJI uh, series of equipment is pretty darn good for your money. It's prosumer. Uh, The Phantom 4, Phantom 4 Pro, Phantom 4 Pro version 2 now, those are pretty much your introduction drone. It's going to run you mm-hmm. two to three grand, depending on how many batteries and accessories that you buy. But with that and some freeware to do automated flights, you can start doing drone work almost immediately. Hmm. But now the hard part is just like uh, playing Go. Yeah, you'll learn how to fly a drone, but it's going to take you years to get good at it. For sure. So what are you guys flying now? Well, we're flying uh, an Event 38 drone, and we have almost the full line of DJI's products, uh, Phantoms, Inspires, uh, and M210. Um, And, of course, we're always looking toward the future for other manufacturers that are producing some really, you know, cutting-edge equipment that will increase our capacity. Now, as, as a civilian pilot, there are limitations. Right. 
that we all have. You know, if we were working for DOD or or some other, you know, alphabet agency, we could then get into the, <laughs> you know, $10 million Boeing, you know, predator drones with, yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, a 10 pound payload, not a big deal. You know? Yeah, not so much. <laughs> yeah. So, nice. th- so we're, we're, we're a DJI company right now because they produce a solid uh, fleet, solid equipment. And then there are always companies that will uh, mod out that equipment to your specifications. And, and we've done that already. You're talking in the plural here. Uh, how many people are at SWCA like, are involved like you with the drones? Well, right now we have 18 licensed pilots and we have uh, about 14 pieces of equipment. Uh, and, you know, in the world of, of drone, I mean, we're, we're um, small to medium. You know, we're not big. You know, some of the large survey companies and engineering companies that are doing this for other purposes, they have a lot more, you know, stuff. Uh, I'm wondering how, how do I put this? Um, I'm wondering how routine drone work has become yet for you guys. Is it part of the normal workflow or is it still kind of a special add-on that's like, oh, for this project, you know, we'll do some photogrammetry over here? Or is it just understood that it's part of your workflow these days? It's becoming a normal part of the workflow because when I do a data recovery, I like to have at minimum the most accurate up-to-date base map that I can then put all of my excavations into that current context. Uh, The free, slightly free, not so expensive satellite data that you can purchase from Esri or the stuff from Google Earth or, you know, whatever group you want to get your information from, you're always at the... um, at their pleasure. When do they have the last data? Um, And I know that there's uh, companies that can give you daily if you like, but for (laughs) being competitive in the market, that's too expensive. So if I can spend two hours flying, you know, about a 10 to 20 acre site um, at very high resolution and then use that as the base map. And it also gives me all my elevation, my digital elevation model, on top of this beautiful ortho image that helps put the entire work into a context and i've been winning uh winning proposals and actually some some grants to actually do this photogrammetry in new mexico and it seems like that's pretty much where we are phasing into every project that we do there is a way of integrating this new technology uh river work uh, all the natural resource side, all of the cultural resource side, there's a way of getting um, basically beautiful images and the analytical data you can acquire from those beautiful images, getting that into a product for one of our clients. Uh, I'm wondering also, well, first, I got to make a comment uh, on something you mentioned about the DJI suite of drones, you know, how you've got the the, the full DJI compliment over there, <laughs> which I think is great because I, I, I've seen at other companies and I've talked to different people and you just pay attention. It's usually kind of the tinkerers in the company that that end up bringing drones into it. And then, you know, they're the people that like kind of getting into it. Often it's GIS people who know a little bit about scripting and stuff like that. So they'll they'll want to get into some some open source type of stuff. But I'll be honest with you, you know, you don't get open source vehicles for your field work. You get trusted vehicles that work, that go out there all the time that you don't have to worry about. And I think if somebody's just getting into drones, even if they're not just getting into it, they've been doing it for a few years. You use what works, and DJI just works out of the box nine times out of ten. So, you know. Yeah, 
Exactly. And and the whole point is reliability because the cost of deployment is so much. It costs mm-hmm. so much to get people in the field. I don't want my tool to not work. I've had that happen yeah. in the field. I was I'm doing a like for um for my daughter's dance studio. They're going to repaint the outside. It's a big warehouse. They want to repaint it, do all kinds of murals and fun stuff. So, no, oh, I can map your warehouse for you. So I go down there and guess what? The equipment doesn't work because I have bad GPS signal. Hmm. Now let's say that that's, you know, something that is normal, but what if I'd had a piece of equipment that didn't have a fail safe to tell me that my GPS signal was bad and it flew anyway. Right. You know, the kind of dummy controls that you get, you know, the fail safes, the, uh, the inability to override certain conditions that come with these Hmm. commercial products is actually a benefit, even though you may not think of it as a benefit, I could have been flying unsafe in an urban environment and potentially cause an accident because the drone would just say, I don't know where I'm going. Bang. <laughs> and it crashes into someone's house. And then I'm yeah. liable for that damage. So, you know, you can do all this stuff. I mean, there's amazing stuff out there. But if you're a graduate student, if you're someone who just wants to get into it, don't go big, go small, go yeah. small and go reliable. And I'm not a shill for the company. I'm not being paid by them. But in our experience, (laughs) we've been able to fly hundreds of hours with that equipment with very little problem. Mm -hmm. And the cameras that they're putting on those are very good. And especially, you know, some of the video that you can get is also very good. You know, a 4K, you know, resolution camera. You know, Zymus uh, 5S, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a really good cinemagraphic camera. But now you're putting that on a $20,000 drone. But, you know, that's an M210. Um, But still, you know, that's that's still a very reliable piece of equipment. And, you know, a lot of of U.S. manufacturers produce very good drones, but it seems to me that you have to be a radio control aircraft enthusiast to really get the most out of those vehicles. You have to basically mm-hmm. be someone who knows how to do it before you get that stuff. Right. The fixed wing aircraft and a lot of the things. So if you don't know, you know, RAC, then you're going to have a very, very long learning curve. Yeah, that's a good point. Fixed wing is uh, fixed wing is no joke. You know, you really have to know how to fly <laughs> to do fixed wing. And and even, you know, I think we get spoiled with the drones these days, too, because even a lot of the cheaper drones out there, you know, from the DJI, you know, Spark and those little ones that they have now. Oh, and, and a lot of them, they all have they all have GPS these days. And I, I have an Inspire. Uh, I have an Inspire Pro 1. And mm-hmm. I was flying that on the Oregon coast. And I went to fly under this, uh, well under this, uh, this cement bridge and then yes. come up the other side of it. And... And it's just on the coast over there. And when I went under the bridge, it lost the GPS signal <laughs> and, uh, because the bridge is full of Art concrete that. and rebar. Go figure, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it lost the GPS signal and I was going super slow. Right. And then I stopped because I was like, okay, it's doing some things. And you don't realize how much the GPS is compensating for drift because I'm also a, a fixed wing pilot. And, mm-hmm. um, and I know that you know when you're flying an airplane, you rely on the trim tabs to really lock in your flight controls and uh, yeah. and keep that going. But there's no trim on the DJI system. There's no trim. The trim is the GPS. The GPS is keeping yeah. you steady. And when you lose that GPS, man, you're done. 
Yeah. And for me, you know, I've, I've never done flight simulation software when, you know, we're out there flying the event 38, this big fixed wing guy. Um, it's, it's yeah. White knuckle flying. Yeah, absolutely. Have have you thought about some of the um, some of the smaller, I, I call them uh, backpack drones? You know, like the well, like the DJI Spark or something, or the not the Spark. What's the, the Maverick Pro? The Mavic Pro that like yeah, folds up. The Mavic have Pro. You, mm-hmm. Have you thought about some of that stuff? For I, I've had this theory in my head, but I haven't actually tried it yet on giving these to field crews because they're super lightweight. You can pack them up into a little container, and when they go out there to do site overviews, just literally throw it up for like two minutes, snap a couple pictures, and bring it back down. Throw it back in your backpack. And get real site overviews, not these five and a half feet off the ground site overviews that we're all used to. <laughs> oh, well, those are those are junk. I mean, literally, that's exactly. because someone thought that that's a good idea that you should have a photograph of the site. Uh, but it's like, yeah, that's right. That's, that's a pro form. Totally useless. To do. Yeah, totally <laughs> useless. But no, that is something that we were actually exploring because uh, we want to be able to do that. And those guys, uh, what is it, 1200 bucks? Mm-hmm. Uh, give or take, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, a fourth of the cost of a Trimble. Right, right. Well, you know, you don't need a Mavic Pro, though. I mean, you no. don't need a Mavic Pro to do that. You can buy a $200 drone mm-hmm. that you just throw up in the air. And even in a heavy wind condition, it only needs to stay aloft for a second to get a couple yep. photos and bring it back down. So. Yeah, and if, you know, some of the folks, the, 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 the limiting factor for us is having the Part 107 licensed pilot, sure. that crew member, because it's good, it's a commercial endeavor. And because we're going to do it commercially, you know, like for the Forest Service or for, you know, the state land office here in New Mexico and the Bureau of Land Management uh, cannot regulate as long as we're in Class G airspace, i.e. open and unregulated. But as soon as you get into Class E or you get into private land or you get into national forest or you get into wildlife reserves or, God forbid, you know, like uh, you get into Department of Energy, Department of Defense, you know, other mm-hmm. places, you um, you have to have a, uh, a permission. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the things that could limit it. That's the only thing I see that could limit that. And otherwise, yeah, go for it. If you have Part <laughs> 107 pilots, get actual real site overviews. No, it's it's great. I don't pay attention too much anymore to uh, to job postings, um, like shovel runs postings and things like that. But I have yet to see, you know, uh, a listing that says carry fifty pounds over rugged terrain, multiple weather environments. Oh, and a Part One Hundred Seven FAA mm-hmm. drone license. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen that yet, but I'm waiting. Expect to see that in the next few years. That's going I to imagine. Come. because, uh, yeah. well, obviously there are still um, CRM firms that don't use gps technology they use paper mm-hmm. there are still firms that do that um there are firms that are fairly progressive and you know like to be not on the bleeding edge but at least you know halfway up the curve when it comes to technology and mm-hmm. you know we're all progressing toward that and eventually i think you know it's not going to happen a lot of those firms the uh, they'll they'll never change so Five, ten years from now, I think this might be an expectation of having this kind of data recovery, data recording just for the um, just for state standards. And I had that conversation at a meeting. The New Mexico Archaeological Council held a meeting and we were doing a historic 
uh, buildings training session, and we had a lot of folks from the state, from the uh, the Office of Historic Preservation, and they were uh, concerned that if we start recording information at this level of detail and this quality, where are they going to put it all? Right. Where's where's it going to go? Because uh, right. I can give them beautiful, you know, renderings, you know, these. 3D, you know, flybys, we can have all this data and it's not going to be the same as a Habs drawing, but it can be just as detailed and different. Like, well, what am I going to do with two gigs? You know, <laughs> I like, we barely, you know, we, we were barely keeping up with the amount of information that are coming in every day from recording new sites. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to make us now, you know, start putting in tens to hundreds of terabytes of storage and we have to archive that indefinitely because that's our, our, um, you know, basically our mandate. How will this happen? So Mm -hmm. the, so the state regulators are aware that this is happening and we are still trying to figure out what to do, especially in the compliance industry. Cause in the, uh, in the academic world, all that information just disappears. Just poof, it's gone. Yeah, totally. The graduate student gets disgruntled or leaves or they get a new job and the disk that they have the information on gets lost or stolen or damaged or just fails to work. All that data is gone. Mm-hmm. And TDAR is obviously one of the locations that we could start thinking about, but I don't know if they're ready yet yeah. for the amount of information because unless the National Science Foundation you know, gives them millions and millions of more dollars to start, you know, purchasing all those terabytes of storage space, we are going Mm -hmm. to experience a data, you know, crunch. Now, I mean, we put in at our company just for a little local office, we put in 20 T's and in less than, uh, you know, three months, I'm already a quarter full. So now you start doing the math. And this is just with me doing one project every month. Now, what if we have multiple people? So that's another thing for all the folks who are wanting to get into this. Never, never, never forget that you're going to have terabytes of data coming and you can't have one copy of it because then you have no copies of it. You need three or four copies of it. So you'll have one or two copies of your data because you spend all that time and money collecting it now what are you going to do with it and how are you going to make it available to other people who would also you know like to and in some cases you're mandated to give them that data especially if it's an nsf project uh you're getting funding from nsf i have the right to that data at some point how am i going to get it for sure so so that's something that we're all wondering what we're going to do as a company individually you know, at the state level, they're not, uh, they're smart people. They're aware of it. And then as individuals, mm-hmm. you all are probably wondering, yeah, I have a bunch of these Western digital hard drives and they're looking kind of old. Does that, yeah. does it still spin? And am yeah. I going to have a yeah. computer that can actually read it? Mm-hmm. Indeed. Well, we will, uh, we will tackle some of those questions and, uh, and some more tech stuff on the other side of the break. Back in a second. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists, have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. 
Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 88. We are talking with Bill Whitehead about drones, and I think we're going to end up getting into a few other topics here. So let's keep on going. Uh, first off, I have a question, Bill, about your drone work. Now, you, you've kind of alluded to this a little bit, but is the drone work to the point where it's it's right now it sounds like it's an add-on to a lot of projects. You're doing different things uh, or you're enhancing some of the data you were getting before. You're just getting like a better base map and things like that, like you were mentioning. Is it saving the company money yet or is it still an add-on to a project? Like it might be a little bit more, but the clients are like, yeah, but it's worth it. So let's do it. Well, in the the initial days here, these are companies that have the vision that have individuals in there, their engineering departments and their GIS departments who would like to see this uh, moving forward. We've already been through the LIDAR and LIDAR has a lot of great uses. It's a known standard for a lot of companies, especially big engineering companies that need 100 miles mapped because they're going to be doing road work. But those LIDAR images are not as good or and they're and or different than what we can do. So the, we're now getting work from clients that are specifically drone based. Mm-hmm. They want to do things that are different and they want to try and uh, achieve cost savings because you are not dealing with lighter companies that have to fly planes and scheduling and all this other stuff. If we can do this as a as an add-on to existing field work and we can get the same results as LIDAR or better sometimes because, you know, we are getting, mm-hmm. you know, ridiculously small, you know, sa- ground sample distances as opposed to LIDAR. Um, they're saying, hey, let's try this. Let's, instead of sending a LIDAR out for that section, hey, why don't you guys go out and do a photogrammetry mapping of that section and let's compare the results. So I think that's what's happening is that in some instances, companies are seeing that photogrammetry is going to be good enough for what they need to do. And if it's three times cheaper than a LIDAR company's uh, ground mapping survey, they'll go with us. And for some applications, you know, like let's say, um, you know, for doing multiple looks, uh, what I really like about this uh, photogrammetry is that it's cheap enough that we can start doing, you know, uh, diachronic, you know, monitoring of locations. So we can go back, you know, repeatedly mm-hmm. every week or every year or, or at some, you know, interval and we can record the same location, sometimes exactly with the same flight pattern. And we can give you that data over mm-hmm. and over and over again. And for monitoring work, a lot of uh, companies are willing to do that. And this is a public, uh, public company. The uh, water utility of Albuquerque hired us to do uh, some mapping and then to uh, compare legacy data that they received from traditional engineering mapping with photogrammetry and then show how their test sites for uh, rehabilitating uh, locations along the Rio Grande for the Silvery Minnow, see how those have changed through time. And that was a very Mm -hmm. successful project 
the client was very happy with the detail of the images because we could show them exactly how their project created habitat. And then with the visuals, we could show, and by the way, that habitat that you created was also a really great habitat for invasive species. So we could add to that you know, the kind of quantification from the visual data, from the orthophotography and the mapping that they never had before. They're used to having, once again, biologists on the ground with a camera, snap, 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 and then they estimate things. So now with this total coverage, you know, I can, you know, we could say, well, do you want to see all 20 acres right now? Because give me a week and I'll give it to you right now. You know, we can give it to you. <laughs> and then, you know, that's real cheap. Um, nice. Yeah. And they're, and they're, they want to see that. Yeah. And they, they want to see this kind of, you know, everybody is used to Google Earth now. Now they want to go deeper. They want to go a level, you know, an order of magnitude deeper now. Yeah. And they want to have that on demand and they want to have that, um, you know, to their specifications. So, you know, that that's where I think we're at in the market. Well, you're saying uh, deeper here and deeper can mean a bunch of different things. So what, what kinds of data are you collecting? What, uh, what kinds of sensors are you using? Um, what seems to be most popular? What do you see yourself or hope to be using soon? Well, we know that in agriculture, uh, near-infrared imagery is used to monitor uh, basically plant productivity, plant health, and a couple of other, you know, density of plants. So there's, you know, the, the companies that do uh, post-processing like Drone Deploy and Pix4D, those are the two big ones uh, right now. Esri is doing it too, but they're actually, they were riding off of Pix4D for a long time. Um, that near-infrared is good for photosynthetic tracking. Visual cameras, RGB cameras for everything else, and then you have these specialty uh, cameras. Thermal cameras are the things that uh, people are just now kind of getting into uh, to do a lot of other monitoring. Uh, those thermal devices have been on planes for a long time, and part of uh, monitoring um, especially buried resources or do you have hot spots or cold spots along your line? Cause either one of those can tell you something is not good. Something's not normal. You need to shut down the flow and figure out that anomaly. So we're trying to figure out as a company, how we can use other spectra, right. you know, other photonic spectra. And of course, next is putting, you know, uh, not the same kind of research, high quality geomag, but putting, you know, geomag on drones and flying geomag across territories to get kind of like, you know, the big picture geomag of large areas. So, you know, like you're going to see just by the bulk change in mm. reason, uh, in, um, and magnetic uh, uh, Tesla, you know, the number of, you know, magnetic changes, you'll see big things underground. You know, you could, I could see that easily working in, um, in Europe where you have, you know, a mm -hmm. lot of uh, buried resources in the United States too, you know, like the, you know, you want to go over a, an area, you might find hidden mounds or earthworks and things, you know, with big geomag. So geomag is a new thing that's coming in for everyone. So, yeah, so uh, we can look at magnetics, obviously. We can look at uh, – I haven't really seen GPR on drones yet, but I'm sure that's going to be coming, where you can do GPR, a different kind of GPR, not the ground contact GPR that everyone's used to. But GPR is going to be coming soon. We're already looking at, you know, deeper wavelengths and, uh, you know, from radio all the way up to, you know, we can't do ultraviolet, but – you know, if you're a defense contractor, maybe you want to put other types of um, 
you know, sensors to identify, um, you know, gamma, alpha, you know, radiation coming off of things, you know, radioactive sensors. They're there. And of course, you know, there's also other types of sensors we could be putting on these, you know, anything that can sample a chemical. Why not send an H2S sensor on a drone into a plant to make sure that nobody's leaking? You know, those are the kinds of things that, that you know, we could strap any type of sampling onto one of these vehicles and start using it. Mm-hmm. So for us as archaeologists, we have just to figure out, are we going to be ahead of the curve or are we just going to be behind, you know, those bleeding edge? And right now, I think because we don't have the money to develop and we don't have the time to develop new uh, tools and resources, I think we're always going to be using stuff that comes out, you know, basically a year or two uh, behind, you know, the technology as it comes out and we're figuring out an application for it. But in in the the conservation world in archaeology, we're going to be doing a project in uh, western New Mexico in uh, Navajo territory on a Kiva site where we're going to be doing high-resolution mapping to help preserve the archaeological resource. We want to do a very, very high-resolution map, about 2.5 centimeters per pixel, do a digital elevation model at that resolution, and then deform it, basically put it through a... um, an erosion simulation to see what parts of the site need to be managed right now for erosion and what that percentage of probability is going to be and how long that, uh, that, uh, that state in its current management um, situation can last without the archaeological resource being harmed. And of course, that means, you know, simulating rain, simulating number of events, magnitude of events, and then giving the National Park Service that information so then they can appropriately plan their conservation effort. Like that's a great thing you can do with a drone right now. Yeah. How, how, what software do you use to do that erosion simulation? I know you said simulating different things. Are you just doing that in GI, in a GIS? Yeah, just, just a GDAL tool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just nice. Simple GDAL. Nice. Cool. I'm a big fan of QGIS. I like that as oh, yeah. a, uh, not as a client side platform to, uh, to produce, um, you know, our cartography that we're, uh, letting the public see, but as a development tool, QGIS is awesome. Mm-hmm. Free is great. And the oh, number yeah. of tools and all the GDAL resources you can run uh, inside of it, you know, just basically good WYSIWYG, just what you see, what you get, just go for it. You know, thinking about that uh, the data and that big map that you want to produce uh, for the National Park Service, this ties into our earlier conversation about, you know, calling up a client in 20 years and saying, hey, I'm going to have to delete some of this old data. <laughs> Using an example of, say, this podcast, this podcast is going to end up being a total of an hour long. I record uh, in high quality MP3, but I edit in uh, a lot of the stuff I edit in WAV files. And when I mix this down, I master it into a long WAV file that uh, is about a gigabyte for an hour-long podcast. So I ended up with about two gigabytes of data all together when it's all said and done, especially with three people on the call here. I end up with about two gigabytes of information. However, when I mix this down into a final MP3 file that actually gets put out onto the web, it's about a megabyte a minute. So we're looking at about a 55 to 65 megabyte file. Now, realistically... I mean, honestly, I'm keeping all the other stuff, but if push came to shove, really, I just need that final MP3 file. So um, when you're looking at all this data that you're collecting and then you're running it through all these processes and then producing these products, 
what is the order of operations that you would say you would need to keep and delete? I mean, obviously the final product is something that I would just assume you'd want to keep, but maybe not. Maybe the initial stuff so you can run other analyses on it. I don't know. What's your thoughts on that? Well, the way it works is I have my um, my pre my pre-flight planning information. Uh, I've got a few QGIS files, very small, obviously, shape files that I use to uh, make HAMLs that get imported into my automatic flight software. Uh, so that's trivial. That's a small bit of information. But at the end of this project, I'll probably have about 8,000, maybe 10,000 images, 8 to 10 gigabytes of raw data, which I'll never get rid of. That raw data with the um, with the GPS location and obviously the the picture that's going to drive everything in the future. When I upload it to my analysis software Pix4D, I'll typically get back uh, from the analysis. I'll typically get back about sixteen to eighty gigabytes, depending on what size of um, a product I want the, to produce from those images. So now we're talking, we're already in 90 gigabytes into it. And then with post-processing of that and doing whatever custom work you want to do, let's add on, you know, some more gigs. This project by itself is going to be 100 gigabytes. Mm -hmm. And for folks who are not used to dealing with these big, you know, project sizes, that's going to start to seem pretty daunting. And when I give the National Park Service and the New Mexico State Park this information, I'm sure that their IT department is going to say, well, what do we do with this now? <laughs> you know? Right. So they'll be in um, they'll be in TIFF format, obviously, a lot of these things, the uh, ortho mosaics, the digital elevation models, the uh, contour maps, those will be shape files. You know, those are a little smaller. There'll be files that People who know, you know, this to do, do this work, this is all standard stuff. It's just, you know, how long are we going to do this? So part of this is I'm actually going to print paper. I'm going to print oh, paper my. maps. I'm going to print this out because for archiving, at least we'll have a paper record of something. Yeah. And if this digital data ever goes away, it'll be in the New Mexico State Museum, paper recording what happened on those days by those people. And it should be preserved, you know, for um, for as long as, you know, we have that museum. And as the mm -hmm. event in Brazil shows, sometimes they can go away, too. <laughs> Sometimes it can. And that's a that's a really good point to note, too, because I, I talk to a lot of people about digital recording from just site records and text to, you know, maps and drone data and things like you guys are doing. And they think, wow, once this complex digital data is created digitally, it's always going to be digital. Now I have to store it digitally. But a lot of this stuff can just be printed out. We still yeah. we still can record it two dimensionally on paper and yeah. store it that way. And it's yeah. not the end of the world. Yeah, yeah I, I just burned. 5,000 pieces of paper printing out all of the artifact <laughs> logs, all of the, the, fe the, the features. I printed out an entire data recovery, 1,300 pages of data because I want that data to be on paper so someone can just read it. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't depend, you know, it's like these are the headers, here's the data, and I'm going to, it's all on paper. Yeah. And, you know, with these, you know, with a 3D animation, yeah, it's hard to put that on paper. But at least for, you know, 2D representations, we can, uh, we, we can record this stuff. So there's always going to be a need for this, especially since the archives want to see this 
in a solid, tangible form. Right. Yeah, that's something that I always say, especially if you're dealing with any kind of uh, metric or textual data, things that can be written down, uh, make a human readable so that uh, you can actually print it out in some poor sod somewhere in the mm-hmm. future. If nothing else is there, they can get the paper and type the values <laughs> back in. You know, don't make mm-hmm. that your primary source of, of how you're storing your data, but make it one of the ways that you can export it. Yeah, and my site forms, I sometimes will generate a 20 or 30 page site form because I'm putting the entire chapter that mm-hmm. is in the volume, putting that in the site form because I know that's how people are interacting with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the electronic stuff is great, but sometimes, you know, you need to duplicate it. There's redundancy. There's a need for all of this. So, you know, really in, the, in this drone world, it's all high tech and it's all, oh, it's great. We're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But you know, we do have to go back a few generations and figure that, um, you know, that that paper, solid paper that's not acid based with good archival quality printing is where, you know, we still need to be at a certain point because I would like to see my work, you know, in the future perpetuate. Okay. Well, that is just about all the time that we have, Bill. Um, Do you have any final things that we didn't ask you that you wanted to mention about the work that you're doing? Well, I just want to tell everyone that that are thinking about drones, do it. Just do it. It, (laughs) You're going to have fun doing it. That the the information record is going to be great. That, you know, especially for students, you know, this is uh, for any students that are listening, get your Part 107 license, get out there and learn Mm -hmm. these techniques become fluent in some GIS program to where if someone says, I need you to make a map because our GIS department guy is sick and I need this tomorrow. You can say, you can step up and say, I can do it. So get yourself, you know, acquainted with this technology, get yourself a license and get yourself um, acquainted with doing GIS on your own. And Mm -hmm. if you're a student, even if you're a professional, you will always use those skills. Outstanding. Well, that's good advice. And uh, hopefully some people will do that. I, I'm really looking forward to, like I said before, seeing a Shovel Bones post that includes Part 107 license because that's just that's just how we're doing things these days. So, well, all right. maybe we'll, we'll be doing that in the future. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Bill, uh, for coming on the show. Thanks. Thank you. Tired of the webinars and training offered by the big organizations not being free for members and not really covering what we need? Team Black has the answers. Check out arccert.black forward slash main for our upcoming webinar schedule. All of our webinars happen once a month and seating is limited. Learn everything from field tech basics to drones to digital workflows. We have more classes coming online every month. Classes are always one hour and cost just $20. Classes like building a CV and getting a job are always free. That's right. We'll help you get a job, then we'll be here when you want to level up your skills. If you are a professional subscriber to the APN at arcpodnet.com slash members, then you get all of Team Black's offerings for free as part of your membership. We have Team Black memberships coming that will give the same for the APN. So $20 a month gets you all the APN swag and extras, plus free training from Team Black. So check out arccert.black for more information and level up your skill set today. That's arccert.black. This network is listener-supported. 
We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.arcpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.arcpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 88, and this is the App of the Day segment. And I think I'll just go first here because I'm so excited to talk about this thing that I saw a few months ago. And um, I actually emailed this company to try to get a demo model, but they're all in Germany, and I don't think they understood, and they didn't really know what was going on. So, um, so I just bought it. And it's a physical thing tied to an app, and it's called Timeular. And it's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R timeular.com. Now, I've had a lot of problems in the past tracking project time. You know, you, you, there's always, there's Toggle is out there, but Toggle is an app. You know, they, they've got, it's got a Chrome extension if you use Chrome all the time, so that makes it a little easier. But most of these things require you when you're switching projects, or let's say you're working on a project that's billable to a client and every archaeologist out there can understand what I'm talking about. And most other people who aren't archaeologists also know what I'm talking about. So you're billing time to a client or billing time even to a, a project. Let's just say you want to track how much time you spend doing a thing. To do that with most of these apps, you have to go and you know open up your phone or your watch or your computer and, and start and stop and do the thing. And I'll be honest, I forget. Nine times out of 10, I forget until it's like 10 minutes into it. And they're like, what time did I switch? Ah, damn it. You know, it just fails completely. Well, Timeular has uh, desktop and uh, smartphone applications and also an eight-sided object. I don't know how many, how many is eight sides? An octahedron? It's an octahedron. <laughs> and, it's beautiful. It looks like a big uh, D&D die. Oh, it's, yeah. It's enormous too. It's huge. Uh, it's, it's about a, a little smaller than a hardball, I would say, for baseball. And a super light. I mean, it weighs nothing. There's just a little bit of circuitry inside of it. And you basically assign each one of the sides to an activity. And they give you this pen you can draw on it with, or they give you stickers like little phone sticker, email sticker, stuff like that. But I didn't really need to track those types of things. I'd rather track when I get a phone call. If that's for DigTech, I want to flip it to the DigTech side. If it's for the APN, I want to flip it to the APN side. And then I can leave a note in there later on, or if I don't want to at all, it doesn't matter, about what I was working on um, during that thing. So this is a physical object that it comes with this little stand. So when it's in its stand and there's one of the points is facing up, it's off. You're not tracking any time. You pull it off the stand and whatever side is face up, you're instantly tracking that time. And then if I get a Slack message in another channel or I get an email I need to respond to or something like that, I just got to do something real quick. I flip it to one of the other sides that represents that task. And then it just, it stops recording the other one and starts recording the new one instantaneously. I don't do anything else. And, and then I can, you know, move it around. I travel around with me in my backpack. I take it to the coffee shop. 
I take it wherever I'm going now. And if I forget it or I don't need it for some reason, I can also just start and stop the time on my phone like normal, the old way that I don't like doing. So, um, and I've forgotten to do that. Like I haven't brought this thing with me sometimes. And then I'm just trying to track my time on the phone using the same app. And it, again, it fails because I suck at doing that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but this makes it real easy. I mean, the thing is sitting right in front of me. And I took my label maker and I made labels for all eight sides. And, uh, and it's really great. And I just, I absolutely love this thing. Um, I think it's 99 euros to buy the device. Uh, but right now on their website, um, I actually did the deal where you get it for 49 euros and then nine euros a month for you, you pay for six months up front. So I think the total cost with shipping, shipping was free from Germany, which is pretty great. But I think the total cost of shipping was like $104 or $114 or something like that. And that gives me six months of the heavily integrated service. You don't need the heavy integration if you don't want to. You can still track eight, eight activities, but you get timesheets. I figured I'd try the full the full suite of things for this first six months and then see if I like it. And if I don't, I just simply stop paying. And now I just have a device that tracks my time and uh, doesn't have that full integration. So I think it's pretty great. It, it's neat that it's an app tied to a physical device. And if the physical device stops working, you still have the app. But you do need the app and you do need internet connectivity for it to track your time. Um, well, not necessarily internet connectivity because it comes with a little, one of those little USB plugs like, um, like, like a mouse comes with sometimes. And if you plug that into your computer, then it doesn't need to Bluetooth. Otherwise, it Bluetooths to your phone. The other nice thing is it's not always draining the energy from Bluetooth because it only really activates itself when it's moved. So when you move it to a new face, it knows immediately when that happened. And then it, it takes the time to make that Bluetooth connection and then go back in time and, and track that time that you moved it and then start and then shuts Bluetooth off again and then doesn't turn it back on until you flip it again. So... The battery inside is just one of those little coin batteries. Uh, it should last for an incredibly long period of time because it's super low energy. So I don't know. Does it look like something? Uh, look, it looks pretty cool, doesn't it, Paul? I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It looks like something you want to play with, which I think is the uh, kind of the idea. <laughs> right. They could uh, take this this class of software that I've I've never have for. Well, fortunately, I've never really needed to use time right. tracking software like that. But uh, mm -hmm. even in those cases where I've tried to use it. Um, it always kind of fails for me. So just removing that from being purely a software thing and making a physical object is a, is a cool take on it. Um, yeah, no. And it's a nice looking little object. It's, it's <laughs> um, you know, it's a decoration, if nothing else on your desk, it's not embarrassing looking or uh, weird looking. No. Yeah, it really is. And I, I've toyed with the idea of if I have just a ton of stuff to do and I can't figure out what to do next, like just like rolling it like a dice, <laughs> whatever <laughs> side pops up. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm working on now. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So that's pretty cool. Check it out. Uh, we'll have the link in the uh, in the show notes. So go ahead, Paul, with your app of the day. All right, my app of the day is not so much one particular app as another class, and uh, I'm talking about today because I just found out about this kind of app today. Um, I took a uh, CPR class this morning, and at the end of it, the trainer said, oh, you should go on the App Store and download the first aid app from the Red Cross. So I, uh, I went on the App Store, and right under the Red Cross first aid app and the Red Cross pet first aid app, there was a heart rate monitor app. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, it said that it used the camera, and I thought, well, that that's interesting. It probably won't work with my phone because, like I've said before, I've got a, an older iPhone, uh, an iPhone 6. And 
it said that it was compatible with it. So cool. I downloaded that app and uh, and took my uh, my pulse right there, and nice. it worked perfectly, which was really pretty amazing to me because when I've whenever I've used the, uh, the like the exercise watches that have the little pulse rate mm-hmm. monitor thing on them, those barely ever work for me. I've got terrible circulation in my fingers. I have Raynaud's phenomenon. And um, they just can't seem to pick it up. I mean, if my mm-hmm. fingers are having a spasm, even the doctor's one, the things that clip on your fingertip won't read my pulse. Uh, but this worked just fine. I admittedly was not having uh, any kind of reaction from the Raynaud's. Um, so the one that I downloaded was the top one there, Instant Heart Rate by Azumio. And it looked beautiful and uh, worked fine. And then when I launched it the second time so that I could you know, do a deeper dive into the program uh, to, uh, to discuss it here on, on the podcast, mm-hmm. it, uh, I couldn't get back into it. It said I need to oh. sign up. <laughs> I could log hmm. in with Facebook or I could sign up in order to do it. So I quit the app hoping that it would reset, but no, it knew that I'd uh, already used it once and I had to go make an account in order to continue to use this app. And I thought, well, I don't particularly like that for this little kind of one trick pony. So I looked again for heart rate monitors in the app store, specifically not first aid like I did the first time. Uh, and I downloaded the next one down the list. And so this one is called Heart Rate Monitor by Weng, uh, by Wenpeng Zhang. And um, I guess that's probably a one-man shop. Um, beautiful little app. Works perfectly. Uh, the only complaint I'll have about this particular one is it pops up advertisements constantly. Uh, I do believe that there's a paid version of it. Um, and basically, what you do, you put your finger over the um, over the lens and over the light on your phone, and mm-hmm. hit start. And a few seconds later, it picks up your pulse. And uh, after a few seconds of reading it, so it's got a fairly constant reading. It displays it for you. You can link it in with the uh, health center on Apple iOS, and it'll push that pulse over to uh, to the to the uh, health center, which is all really cool. Um, again, I don't know that this is the best of these kind of apps. It's only one that I've had on my phone for a few hours today, uh, and I've only played with it a couple of times. I don't particularly obsess about my heart rate, so it's not something that I, <laughs> I'm doing all the time. But, I, I, you know, we often talk about the, the cool stuff about with, uh, with the phones is that, you know, a lot of things that used to be separate hardware are now kind of rolled into this one all-in-one device that we carry on us all the time. Uh, and this is something that in retrospect is pretty obvious, um, but in implementation is really cool. And now, you know, if I should need it, I've got a simple heart rate monitor that, uh, that seems to be pretty damn accurate uh, sitting here on the nice. phone. So, you know, Take a look at it. If this is something that is important to you for your health, um, you might want to take a look and see what your phone is capable of doing because it looks like there are a bunch of these apps out there. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I've seen uh, Yeah, I've seen a ton of heart rate apps when I've looked before. Now I have my Apple Watch, and it is actually halfway decent at taking my heart rate because I've checked it. I, I was I was skeptical at how good it was, and uh, you know I've done just the the standard you know, pulse finger against your neck kind of thing uh, to check mm-hmm. my heart rate. And it's it seems on most of the time. So, uh, and that's pretty great. And I like how it doesn't, uh, um, it doesn't track it all the time unless you're doing a workout. So mm-hmm. it just does it like every 10 minutes or something like that. And then if you're doing a workout, it's continuous. So that's pretty cool. But it's pretty neat to be able to use the camera and flash on your phone to just do it whenever you want. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. 
<laughs> that was uh, really ingenious. Yeah. I, I don't know yeah. who came up with this idea first, but uh, kudos mm-hmm. to them for uh, for figuring out how you can use this hardware that everybody's already carrying around with them. Yeah, there you go. And I think that other one wants you to sign up with Facebook because uh, let's go deep conspiracy theory on this. So they're going to record... <laughs> They're going to record your heart rate and and what your pulse typically is. And then when we have cameras sensitive enough that are commercially available to see you out in the wild, it'll be able to see that pulsing in your neck and then identify you and target ads towards you. That's my thought. Perfect. (laughs) Right? So I'm glad that I didn't uh, keep that first one around. Uh, The second one is just throwing ads uh, at me in the app itself. Nice. Uh, And way too many. Every time you hit some button, it does it. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's it's beautifully designed. Um, this uh, heart rate monitor, the second one mm-hmm. that I found, and we'll put a link in the show notes because I'm sure there are dozens of apps out there, oh, yeah. all named heart rate monitor, heart rate light, heart rate free, heart rate this, heart rate that. Yeah, and we don't want to give you a heart attack trying to figure out the one you want to use. Right. Does that uh, second one you downloaded? Did that does that have a purchase option to get rid of the ads? Probably because when I look yeah. at the icon on the uh, on the screen here, it says heart rate light. Uh, oh yeah. Even there though the go. name is heart rate monitor, so that suggests that there's a uh, a paid version. Um, you know, so again, this is something I'm, I just found out about a few hours ago, and I haven't had mm-hmm. much chance to play with them because it's uh, school is opening tomorrow, and we've been swamped all day today. Uh, <laughs> But, yeah. I, you know, just bolt from the blue. Oh, it's so obvious. <laughs> nice. Nice. Okay. Well, uh, I think we'll call it right there then. Check out these links. Um, we've got Timular and I've got uh, I've got the other two written down. I'm not sure which one Paul's going to give me, but probably I'll we'll try both. I'll both on the, yeah. uh, on the uh, <laughs> show notes and, uh, <laughs> and people can make their own decisions. Nice. All right. Well, thank you, Paul, very much for joining me this week. Thanks, Chris. And uh, we'll see everybody else in two weeks. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash architect. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.